spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. GX on Agriculture with Doug Falconer. Good afternoon and welcome to GX on Agriculture. Coming up on today's program, grain markets were mixed this week. We'll hear from PI Financial Commodity Futures Advisor Adam Piccolo, who will talk about the fact that canola has been trading down while spring uh, wheat futures have been trading up this week. The Saskatchewan Water Security Agency released the preliminary spring runoff outlook for 2023 on Wednesday. We'll hear from Water Security Agency spokesman Sean Osmar, who will tell us about not just some of the land around the area, but also some of the river systems in the parkland region. The identification of African swine fever and wild boar in Greece highlights the Swine Health Information Center's monthly Global Swine Disease Surveillance Report. Executive Director Dr. Paul Sundberg will join us on today's program. And Good Soil Makes Good Food is the theme of Sask Soil's annual conference coming up in Regina next week. Mark Heimer from Minton is the chair of Sask Soil's. He'll talk about some of the speakers that will be attending that conference in Regina. All of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of GX and Agriculture. But first, it's time for the Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. And that's a presentation of Milligan Bio. Milligan Bio now offers bio meal for your livestock, giving your animals more protein, more energy, and more of what they need. It's also brought to you by Sean Prahitka, your REMAX Blue Chip Ag Division Specialist. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Grain markets were mixed this week. PI Financial Commodity Futures Advisor Adam Piccolo says canola is down about $5 per metric ton, while spring wheat futures have risen about 15 cents a bushel. Starting off on the canola front, the March contract is down approximately $5 a ton on the week. Currently, on today, we are down about $2.5, sitting at $8.25 a ton. On the wheat side of things, Minneapolis wheat on the March contract increased approximately 15 cents a bushel. Today, we are actually up about 17 cents at about $9.34. So today, the story that I'm kind of looking at here is definitely on the wheat front. We're seeing a pretty big rally here in Chicago, up about 32 cents, and Kansas up about 34 cents here on the day. We did see some bullish numbers from the USDA report on Wednesday. We saw small changes to the U.S. and world stocks. Both were below the average estimates. Steady exports and use definitely. The only maybe slight bearish side of the report was Australian production is up 3.8% month over month. But right now it seems that traders are again kind of watching some of the weather in the U.S. and we might be having a bit of a a short covering rally here today. However, what I'm going to be talking about with producers is 
to definitely be considering rallies like this as potential selling opportunities. Are we done here yet? Not sure, but I think it's something to definitely keep a close eye on. He explains why the price of canola is dropping. Canola has been really trading quite sideways here kind of for the month of February. We saw, again, a bit of a rally off the lows kind of back at the end of January when it dipped below $800 a ton. Now we're sitting at, again, about 825 here right now. It has definitely been kind of affected by some of the, the weather that's affecting soybeans and the meal and the oil. Today, one thing I always like to talk about with clients is how markets affect other markets. So with beans up 16 cents here today, soybean oil up $1.25 today, we might see canola go positive on the day because it is still, again, down a, a few dollars. So I always like to look at how markets are interconnected and help advise clients with their marketing. Pacallo provides his outlook for next week and beyond. Well, it'll be important to see if this rally in wheat is something that can be sustained. It has been, you know, again, still really trading sideways with the range, you know, of about 40 cents here. So Minneapolis now is at the top end of that range at around 930. Chicago is definitely starting to break out. And if we do see it above $8, that could definitely bring, you know, Minneapolis up with it. Adam Piccolo is a commodity futures advisor with PI Financial in Winnipeg. It's time now for the Ag Review portion of our program and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94 Ag Review. The 10% top-up to the federal government's carbon tax rebate for rural Canadians should be re-evaluated that's according to a Liberal MP from rural Nova Scotia. As part of debate in the House of Commons on Tuesday over a Conservative motion to cancel the federal price on carbon, Cody Blois told his colleagues he thinks the 10% rural supplement to the rebate should be reviewed to determine whether it's adequate to make up the difference in the amount paid by rural versus urban Canadians. Blois says he's also worried about the definition of rural might be too narrow. Officially named the Climate Action Incentive Payment, or CAPE, the tax-free payments are sent to residents of provinces where the federal carbon tax or fuel charge is applied, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Residents of Blois' home province of Nova Scotia as well as Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland and Labrador, will receive their first CAPE checks in July of this year. The Canadian Agri-Food Trade Alliance, or CAFTA, who represent 90% of Canadian farmers, producers, food manufacturers and agri-food businesses, strongly oppose Bill C-282, the act to amend the Department of Foreign Affairs Trade and Development Act when it comes to supply management. The bill, sponsored by a Bloc Québécois MP, would amend existing legislation to prevent Canada's trade minister from increasing tariff rate quotas and reducing over-quota tariffs for dairy, poultry or eggs through international trade agreements. CAFTA says this legislation creates a dangerous precedent and diminishes Canada as a free trade partner. They say it contradicts established trade rules 
and severely constrains Canada's ability to negotiate the best free trade agreements for all sectors of the Canadian economy, agriculture and non-agriculture alike. The end result is a less ambitious free trade agenda and less commercially meaningful outcomes for Canada. There's a new potato king in Canada. Alberta surpassed Prince Edward Island last year, according to the latest numbers from Statistics Canada. Alberta grabbed the number one spot with 26.8 million hundredweight of potatoes, only 200,000 ahead of Prince Edward Island. Manitoba was the third largest potato province at 26.1 million hundredweight. Saskatchewan was well down the list in eighth place at 1.45 million hundredweight. However, Statistics Canada notes that its production numbers for Saskatchewan are to be used with caution. Potato production grew 1.5% on a national basis last year. Statistics Canada reports 122.9 million hundredweight of potatoes were harvested last year on just over 381,000 acres. As provinces and states across North America look to capitalize on the potential of the agro-processing industry, Alberta will build on the province's competitive advantages by launching a new tax credit program this spring. Budget 2023 will introduce the Alberta Agro-Processing Investment Tax Credit to provide a 12% non-refundable tax credit to support this growth and attract investments into Alberta's agro-processing industry. The incentive program is available to corporations making a capital investment of $10 million or more to build or expand agro-processing facilities in Alberta. Capital investments made on or after February 7th of this year may be considered in the calculation of a company's total tax credit. The Canadian company, ranked among the three biggest cheesemakers in the United States, is preparing to consolidate five of its cheese plants in that country, down to two. Montreal-based Saputo has announced it has construction underway on a new $240 million cut-and-wrap cheese plant in the Milwaukee suburb of Franklin to be up and running at capacity by the third quarter of 2025. When the new plant is ready, Saputo said it expects to transfer other packaging operations there. To that end, the company said it plans to close its plant in South Dakota in the third quarter of next fiscal year, and another Wisconsin plant at Green Bay in its 2025 quarter three. Also another Saputo plant at Tulare, California, previously slated to be shut down, will now get $75 million in renovations to convert to string cheese packaging to be up and running at capacity by quarter three of 2025. After that, a Los Angeles area string cheese packaging plant at Southgate will be closed and its work transferred to the converted Tulare site. And G3 is renewing its support of the Canadian Agricultural Safety Association, or CASA. The company is committing $50,000 to CASA this year, maintaining G3's position as a top sponsor and safety champion of the Bee Grain Safe program. CASA's Bee Grain Safe program raises awareness of the risks of becoming trapped in grain, 
trains firefighters in rescue techniques and makes available specialized grain rescue equipment to rural fire departments. Since B-Grain Safe's inception in 2016, G3 support has helped train hundreds of firefighters and provided dozens of sets of rescue equipment in farming communities in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec. Grain entrapment is a potentially deadly risk for farmers and others who work around large volumes of grain, and specialized training and equipment are needed to safely extract a victim. Just last year, a Manitoba farmer trapped in grain was rescued by local firefighters who had received B-grain safe training and equipment. And that's the AgriView portion of our program. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will be back right after this. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. It's mainly sunny and minus 6 degrees in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at 1 o'clock. The Saskatchewan Water Security Agency released the preliminary spring runoff outlook for 2023 on Wednesday as it prepares its initial spring runoff report for March of 2023. The information gathered was based on conditions as they were on February 1st. Water Security Agency spokesman Sean Osmar explains. Yeah, so this is uh, this is our preliminary report, like you said, uh, and it's it's used uh, it's compiled using um, data from from conditions that freeze up, so what it was like going into late fall, early spring, or early winter, uh, as well as precipitation that's accumulated to this point. Uh, so what we'll be doing next is uh, we'll be going out uh, across the province doing some actual snowpack surveys. We'll have our, our people in the field actually measuring snow depth in, in about 100 different locations across the province. Uh, and that'll help fill out, uh, you know, the fuller report that we'll release in March. Um, that'll, that'll have, you know, more complete data and a more accurate picture. Um, what it looks like right now, what our preliminary report looks like right now is uh, we should be, you know, a little bit below to near normal for, for much of the province. Um, there's few areas, of course, that are uh, below normal and, and then a, a pocket uh, mostly around the Maple Creek area that's well below normal. The parkland region of Saskatchewan is expected to have near normal runoff this spring. Osmar then provides an update on expected water levels for the Quapel River system. So as things look right now, uh, Capel, the, the Capel system does look good. Looks like we should uh, we should expect to see, you know, pretty normal levels of, of uh, water levels through there into spring and summer. Uh, we're not expecting significant runoff uh, at this point. Of course, you know, with uh, several weeks of winter left, we could still see uh, more snow accumulations uh, and additional precipitation, which would obviously change things. Um, you know, further up the waters, to the headwaters there, uh, the alpine snowpack, it looks like we're, we're in pretty good shape there. It looks to be pretty normal. Um, and again, we'll have to wait and see how that develops come, uh, come melt. As for the Surus River Basin, so Surus River, I mean, going into uh, freeze-up report, they were a little bit drier than normal. Um, but we saw some, uh, you know, late fall, early winter uh, precipitation down that way, which did, does help. Uh, overall, we expect to see, you know, pretty normal amounts. Uh, we expect to see those, uh, those major reservoirs down there be full uh, from the runoff uh, for, you know, spring and summer operations. Osmar also has the latest on the Quill Lakes which have experienced some very high water levels in the past. 
Uh, again, it looks like we're going to be kind of a normal, uh, as it stands right now, sort of a normal runoff expectation. Um, you know, of course, we, we have to wait and see. Uh, you know, like last summer, last year, we had uh, a slower melt. Uh, so the, the speed of the melt will also determine, you know, to some extent how much of this will, will run off, how much will stay with the soil. Uh, so we're watching to see how that will develop as well. And he adds that they'll put out another report in about a month's time. In early March, we'll have our, our full runoff report starting, and then we'll provide regular updates uh, from that point forward as the melt develops. Sean Osmar is a spokesman for the Saskatchewan Water Security Agency. Livestock Market Conditions U.S. live cattle futures for April are trading at 164 even. That's up 37 June live cattle trading at 159.80, up 27. March feeder cattle trading at 186.52, down 30. April feeder cattle trading at 190.60, down 12. April lean hogs trading at 83.30, down 2. May lean hogs trading at 93.22, up 20. And that's the livestock market conditions. The identification of African swine fever and wild boar in Greece highlights the Swine Health Information Center's monthly global swine disease surveillance report. Executive Director Dr. Paul Sundberg says Greece has had that disease before. African swine fever hasn't been in Greece since 2020. And so this is the first time for multiple years that they found um, wild boar, uh, again, two dead wild boar in Greece. And uh, that was near the border of Bulgaria, North Macedonia. So um, the expectation is, and the reports are, that that most probably is, that is the movement of wild boar from those countries in the north down into Greece. And I think that's probably an illustration of the continued uh, activity of ASF, especially in Eastern Europe, as well as another example is in uh, South Korea. Um, wild boar continue to move, wild boar continue to harbor the virus and serve as a um, reservoir of infection. And it's very difficult to control those animals because they are out in the wild. There is no um, and there's no way to to make sure that you've got every one of them. And so it's an, an extremely difficult thing. And that's that's probably the headline for the 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 African swine fever movement um, in for the last month or so. Um, the wild boar continue to be active. They continue to be infected. They continue to be a nidus of infection. Um, the same thing happened in South Korea that wild boar were discovered in South Korea, the same issue. And so I think that's probably one of the things of emphasis for ASF at this time for this uh, report. He says Canada and the United States need to continue to be vigilant against African swine fever due to the large populations of wild boars in the two countries. What we're trying to do is we're trying to learn the lessons that um, are, are often through the European experience with wild boar. As best we can determine, we in, the, in North America have about the same density of wild boar as in Europe. 
Um, it's hard to compare the two directly because they do different measurements of, of bore density. But um, it looks like for our land mass, we have about the same uh, spots of density as there are in Europe. And so um, our issue is learning those lessons of how they were able to or have been able to control it. One of the things, for example, is in Luxembourg. And in Luxembourg, uh, there was an infection in wild boar. They successfully uh, eliminated, were able to isolate the wild boar in the area and work their way in and eradicate those wild boar in the area of infection and successfully remove ASF from their population of wild boar. That's a, that's a big lesson to learn. And I think that's one of the implications for North America. Um, USDA Wildlife Services it has been working uh, very hard on plans to implement the same type of situation in North America in U.S. If that would happen here, um, the the plan is to be to try to ring the infection, ring around the infection, and work your way in from the outside, um, meeting in the middle and eradicating all the boar on as you go in, and so. Um, that has been successful in some places in Europe, and we're hopeful that that would be a successful plan. One of the things that our industry is doing in in the U.S. is working with wildlife services, trying to encourage them to do uh, field trials of the plan so we can see exactly how it could work and how successful it could be in, in elimination. There's a lot of planning that's been done. Um, and we're cautiously optimistic, but we also know that given the European experience, if ASF gets into the wild boar population, the feral pig population in North America, it very well may be extremely difficult to take out. And Dr. Sunberg had these final thoughts. Well, I think that this is a North American issue. It is. Uh, there are wild, wild pigs. There are feral pigs, wild boar in Canada, in the U.S., and in Mexico, um, and they don't respect borders, neither state, province, country borders. And so it's an issue that we all have to work on. We all have to be ready for. And I think it's one that um, all three countries recognize the importance of of the um, quick response and importance of trying to um, control and eradicate any infected wild boars just as quickly as possible. Dr. Paul Sunberg is the executive director of the Swine Health Information Center. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will return in 30 seconds time. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. Good Soil Makes Good Food is the theme of Sask Soil's annual conference coming up in Regina next week. Sask Soil is the descendant of the Saskatchewan Soil Conservation Association, which drew large numbers of producers for their events in the 1990s when direct seeding was being introduced on more farms. Mark Heimer from Minton, Saskatchewan, is the chair of Sask Soils, he says two of the featured speakers come from the United States. David Montgomery and Ann Bilk uh, from Washington have just written uh, a book, What's Your Food Ate? And uh, we're really excited to have them in. David Montgomery has been uh, 
has been writing books for quite a few years now. His background, uh, he is a soil, uh, he's a geologist. So it gives him a really interesting perspective on, on agriculture. Uh, and the book that they've wrote is, is, basically, is basically an extension of the old adage that uh, you are what you eat and that uh, what our food eats, whether that be livestock or whether that be plants, and how how things are grown and and how they're how everything is handled uh, has a has a great effect on the the nutrients that we find in our food, and uh, I think it's a part of the reason that we are so excited to have them is because it really does a great job of linking uh, agriculture and food and consumers and and tying it all together and uh, really excited about about having them. Another speaker is Mark Schatzker, who has combined travel with his love of food, for example, steak. Yes, yes, that, that's his first book is, is, is Steak, and I cannot, uh, cannot imagine a more perfect job than, than having to go all the way around the world and, and have people prepare steaks for you. It sounds like, uh, I don't know how he, he talked himself into that, but it's a... Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic book, and just kind of playing on along the same theme, just going to different regions, having beef that's been raised and different genetics and different backgrounds fed differently um, in different regions, and uh, and seeing how that affects the flavor of the of the meat that uh, the meat that he was eating. He's he's also written a few books since then, uh, Dorito Effect and. Uh, his most recent one is uh, is called Cravings, and it's uh, it's a very interesting topic because all of these these books tie into the uh, into the fact that the way that the food is raised uh, matters. The way it's the way the food is grown, the grain is grown, the way the livestock are raised, it all has a has an effect, and it all plays into the not just the flavor, but also the the nutritional content of of the food that we eat. Heimer talks about some of the other speakers lined up for their conference. A fellow from down in the States, his name is uh, Dan Kittredge, and he's involved with the Bionutrient Food Association. And uh, he's one of the people that is trying to put data behind the things that everyone else is discussing when it comes to nutrient density. So uh, his organization is doing a tremendous amount of testing um, when it comes to the, the nutrient content of food, uh, going much deeper than, uh, than is usually tested for. And he's working on a, a, uh, a device to help consumers to, uh, to be able to sort through different foods and, and recognize some, some higher and some lower quality or, or nutritional content in, in foods. As well, we will have uh, a few of our board members, Derek Axton and uh, Cody Straza, just speaking on kind of some more localized experience when it comes to uh, not only producing food and the different different things that they've been uh, been approaching as far as, as cover cropping and compost and uh, the different different ways to farm and, and raise li- raise livestock as well as some of the the things that they've been doing to to try to get their products out to consumers. So. We've tried to tried to round it all off and, and make it something that ideally, um, not just 
farmers that are that are interested in the way that they're doing things will will find a, of great interest but but also consumers that are that are interested in in uh, the differences of uh, the difference it makes on how food is raised. He also talks about the streaming option for those who can't make it to Regina next Tuesday and Wednesday. We use the uh, the Whova app, so people who who do choose to go virtually are are able to uh, to use that app. And uh, yes, there will be chat rooms, and and we're trying to to get a, get discussion groups, and they'll be able to ask questions while they're watch the presentations live and also participate in the question and answer it is the same the same format we used last year and we were we were very happy with it and had really great reviews so uh, while we're hoping that as many people can uh, can attend in person that's definitely an option more information on the sask soil conference can be found at sasksoil.ca commodities update Canola futures are trading up in the nearby months this hour. March canola trading at 831.70, up $4 per metric ton. May canola trading at 824.40, up $1.20. March Minneapolis wheat trading at 929 and 3 quarters, up 12 and a half cents. March Kansas City wheat trading at 906 and a quarter up 27 and a quarter cents. March Chicago wheat trading at 782 and a half, up 25 and a quarter cents. March corn trading at 678 and a half, up 7 and 3 quarters of a cent. March soybeans trading at 1537 per bushel, up 17 and 3 quarters of a cent. March oats Trading at three seventy-seven and a half, down three and a half cents. And that's the commodities update. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Research conducted by the Prairie Swine Center shows a dramatic reduction in antibiotic usage on swine farms following raised without antibiotics production practices. Dr. Bernardo Predicala, a research scientist of engineering with the Prairie Swine Centre, tells us what prompted their investigation. So the study was aimed to investigate whether the um, RWA, or Race and Without Antibiotic Practices, are really impacting um, the uh, antibiotic usage in uh, those barns, as well as uh, if it's really impacting the uh, frequency of uh, prevalence of um, antimicrobial resistance as well as uh, uh, pathogens. There have been uh, reports previously that were in those uh, barns that adopted RWA practices. Uh, they observed an increased prevalence of uh, pathogens in their barns after a few years within the program. And then we also want to quantify whether the, those practices are actually impacting what, uh, what they're supposed to be, the reduction in antibiotic use. He explains who was involved in the research. 
So uh, in this research, we uh, were working with uh, Dr. Darren Corver, a professor at the University of Saskatchewan, and we recruited uh, two types of barns, so several barns. Uh, of course, we recruited uh, RWA barns uh, as well as non-RWA barns, and then we collected data from those barns over two and a half years. So we collected uh, the records of um, usage of antibiotics as well as the treatments that they did in those barns and all those barns as well as we collected samples uh, every three to six months from each of those, those barns. And then uh, we collected uh, uh, fecal samples, uh, nasal swab samples on piglets as well as in, on uh, sows. And then we collected manure samples as well as samples from the environment around the barn and we sent them for analysis to determine the levels of pathogens in those samples as well as the levels of antimicrobial resistance genes that are present in those samples. As for the key findings, well, the key findings is uh, in terms of the um, uh, total antibiotic usage, as expected, there's, of, of course, a uh, lower, lower amount of antibiotics uh, used in RWA, RWA barns. It's not zero, but it's much lower as factor as, as much from 5 to 10 uh, fold lower compared to non-RWA non barns. The, on the other side, on the antimicrobial resistance genes, so uh, we've seen that um, RWA barns have lower frequency of, of detecting those antimicrobial resistance genes. But on the side of um, pre uh, prevalence of pathogens, we've seen a rise of uh, some specific pathogens in uh, the RWA barns. So uh, we're presuming that it's because we're reducing uh, the amount of antibiotics in those barns, so giving rise to the, uh, to the prevalence or recurrence of these uh, specific types of uh, pathogens. Predicala says a number of pathogens were found. Uh, there are several types of uh, pathogens uh, from uh, protobacteria and then Firmicus. We're just initial stage of uh, looking at the data, so we're looking at different classes of pathogens, swine pathogens, uh, but we're not uh, deep, uh, have gone deeper yet into a specific type of pathogens. Uh, we're still looking at also what kind of uh, uh, viruses that are present in there. It's in the data, but we haven't, haven't analyzed the data yet to go into specific uh, uh, viruses. He outlines the significance of these findings. So um, these findings tells us that um, indeed the RWA practices contribute to the reduction in uh, antimicrobial uh, usage uh, in the barns, but there are some areas wherein um, the, those practices will need, can uh, still be improved or uh, we can develop new uh, management practices uh, to make sure that we don't see this uh, rise in, in uh, pathogens as well as to ensure that uh, we continue to reduce the presence of antimicrobial resistance genes uh, in, in these barns. Predicala explains how this information will be applied. Um, this can be um, this can be applied by the pork producers, especially those that are on uh, uh, RWA barns, but um, generally it can be applied by all producers because the goal is uh, to reduce the total uh, antibiotic usage in farms, and that could be uh, through practices like uh, increased biosecurity, uh, good handling practices or farming practices, and um, the, the goal is to uh, avoid misuse and overuse in antibiotics because uh, uh, previous studies have shown that if we do reduce uh, the, the antibiotic usage, its uh, impact on the 
occurrence of antimicrobial resistance is uh, reversible. There's a uh, studies been shown that if overall reduction in antibiotic usage can lead to reduction in the occurrence of antimicrobial resistance genes. And as for the take-home message? Uh, the take-home message is that um, um, it's good news for producers that if we actually do the good um, um, the good practices and the measures in reducing the total uh, usage of antibiotics, then we can actually um, uh, also reduce the occurrence of antimicrobial resistance genes. So it's reversible, it's not permanent. So uh, we just need to identify those measures that will help us uh, reduce or further reduce or eliminate the use of antibiotics in our uh, production systems. Dr. Bernardo Predacala is a research scientist of engineering with the Prairie Swine Center. And that'll do it for GX on Agriculture for today. Be sure to tune in again on Monday at 12.15 for another edition of the program.